Well, that's what we've been learning, uh, really, isn't it? These, these uh, uh, last few chapters of Genesis, what it means to live by, f- by faith, by trusting in God's promises and, and, and through the, the tough realities of our lives. Uh, of course, specifically, we've been seeing what that looked like for Abraham, um, who Paul uh, describes in, in the book of Galatians as the man of faith. But really, we're discovering what it looked like for him so that we can see what that looks like for us. Um, that, that's the idea, isn't it? Um, what One thing we've seen uh, so far, we saw this in chapters um, 18 and 19, is, is the need to trust in the God who is. In, in other words, n- not some kind of God that we make up in our image, you know, uh, not, not, not a God who, you know, who suits us and the way that we want to live, uh, not a God who conforms to our ideas and sees things the way we see them, tolerates what we tolerate and so on, not a God like that, uh, not a God that we make up in our image, but actually the God who exists, that the God who has made us in his image, uh, that the God who we saw in those chapters um, is a personal God, a God who's revealed himself to us in his word and made certain promises that he will be faithful to, uh, promises that, that began in, in, in chapter 12 of Genesis with those promises to Abraham that we saw, but actually promises that find their fulfillment through the, the descendant of, of Abraham, the, the Lord Jesus, the, the, the God who, uh, the, that God sent to put right what our sin has, uh, has messed up, a God who's holy and just, a God who knows our sin and will hold us accountable for our sin, but a God who is merciful and, and gracious. Um, God who's provided a way to save those who, who believe in him. That's the God we are to trust in, says chapters 18 and, and 19. And then last week we looked at chapter 20, didn't we? And we, we've seen that the God we're called to trust in is the God who intervenes in our world in order to bring about his plans and purposes. He's the, he's the sovereign God who's, who's planned to put right what our sin uh, has messed up will not be thwarted. It, it won't even be thwarted by our failure to trust him sometimes. But, but, but rather, he will actually use those failings of ours to move forward uh, his plans and purposes, not, not despite our failure to trust in him, but actually through it. Um, and, and a God who doesn't give up on us because of our failures, but, but a God who confronts us gently with our sin and then pours out his grace on, on those who trust him. That's the God we're called to trust in, says, says chapter 20. Now here in, in chapter 21, uh, as we move into that this morning, we're going to be reminded here, I, I think, that the God we are to trust in is the promise-keeping God. In other words, he's the God who lives up to his word. Um, uh, to be a Christian, to, to have faith in God's promises, is to take God at his word because he's a faithful God who lives up to his word. That's the idea here, I think, in, in, in this chapter. And, and that's something that Abraham uh, has, has had to discover, isn't it? Uh, and we'll see it again here, um, in, through times of adversity and times of testing, through the tough realities of his life. But of course, friends, that's what God does, isn't it? He, he deepens our faith in him through trial and adversity we've seen that in the life of Abraham because that is what God does you know as C.S. Lewis famously puts it pain insists on being attended to God whispers to us in our pleasures 
but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone, Lewis says, to to rouse a deaf world. And, And that's right, isn't it? The psalmist says, Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. See, God knocks off our rough edges. He deepens our trust in him through adversity and through affliction. What 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7 puts it like this. You've been grieved by various trials that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the tough realities of life do, friends, isn't it? They give us a kind of a faith makeover. (laughs) They deepen our trust. And that's what's been happening to Abraham, hasn't it, in in these chapters. He's been given certain promises. He's been called to respond to them by faith, by trusting God's promises, and so obeying what God says. And often he has, of course, we've seen that. But then when the going gets tough, well, the tough didn't get going. In his case, his faith took a a, a nosedive. Um, And we saw a great example of that actually last week, didn't we, in chapter 20. As yet again, he tries to fob off his wife as his sister because he didn't trust God to keep him safe uh, and thought he needed to deceive in in order to, to do that. But even so, it seems as though God's refining of Abraham is kind of paying some dividends. I think we'll see some evidence of that here in chapter 21, that, that actually through the trials, Abraham is growing in grace and in trust which is just as well because as we'll see the next time when we get to chapter 22 he's going to face his biggest test of faith yet so that's that's to to come so let's have a look at this chapter 21 and and let's try and see what having faith in God's promises looks like and and as we look at at first of all at verses 1 to 7 I think we see that it looks like trusting in the faithful God in the faithful God. And you can see right away, look, can't you? Verses 1 and 2. We can see right away that God is faithful to his word. Did, did you notice that? The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Do, do you see? That the promise of a son, of course, it, that, that, that had been made, hadn't it, way back, some 25 years earlier. It had been frequently reiterated and expanded upon since then. Most recently, of course, back in chapter 18, when the, the three men came to visit him under the oaks at, at, at Mamre. And now the narrator wants us to know that God is keeping his word to, to the letter. He's faithful to his word. Uh, in fact, one of the things that might strike you about those verses is how kind of matter of fact they are. You know, after all the after all the build up, after all the drama since chapter 12, after after 25 years of trusting God's promise of a son, even though they were both well beyond the age of being able to have children, and in any case, Sarah had never been able to, to conceive. Now, you know, eventually, Sarah gives birth to a son in her 90s, and all we get is just a couple of verses that say, well, he did what he promised. He did what he said. It's, it's almost an anticlimax, isn't it? It's all very understated. But I think that's the point, you know. Um, the, the narrator here doesn't make a big deal of it. Um, because for God to be faithful to his word, it's just a foregone conclusion. It's, it's what he does. So he just 
sort of mentions it and moves on. And friends, that's what God is like. He speaks his word, and then when the time is right, in accordance with his plans and purposes, he keeps his word. That's what he does. And, And isn't that just so good to know? When he speaks his word, he keeps his word. He will do what he says. He'll keep his promises. He lives up to his word, and he'll do so bang on time. We don't have to doubt it. We can trust it. Because he lives up to his word, we can take him at his word. He's he's faithful. And actually, that's what Abraham does here, isn't it? Have a look at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. You see? So, So God has been true to his promise, and so Abraham is true to God's command. God had told him back in chapter 17, verse 19, that he was to call the son that God would give him Isaac, and so he did. And God had said to him, chapter 17, verse 12, that that every male born uh, to to both him and to his offspring were to be circumcised as a a sign of, of the covenant that God had made with him. So that's what he did. God had been true to his promise. Abraham was true to God's requirements. He took him at his word. So so we see here, friends, don't we, that that God is faithful. God is true to his word. And and you know, 2,000 years later in the New Testament, that the one who came to fulfill all of those promises would would declare in, in Matthew's gospel, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Do you see, the one who fulfills it all says that all of it will be fulfilled. There's there's no doubt about it. And friends, that means that to have faith in the promises of God is to trust every iota, every dot, every syllable of God's word. What God says, he will do. And so we can, and and we must, take him at his word. Now that is great news if you are not yet a Christian this morning. If you're here in the building or if you're watching uh, online, this is great news for you if you're not yet a Christian. Because as we've seen uh, in these chapters, the promise of a son for Abraham was merely stage one. Stage one of a plan to bring blessing to the world through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've heard something of that good news message before. Maybe you've heard it here at Grace Church. That the news that the God who made us, but whom we've rejected, has done something incredible. Something incredible to put right what our sin has messed up. By sending Jesus into the world in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. To, to die on a cross in our place, to, to take our sin upon himself so that we can be forgiven and restored to God and, and know eternity with him. Maybe you've heard that message before. Maybe you've even seen the seed of that message here in, in Genesis as it points us forward to what Christ is going to do. But you're thinking, can I trust that? Can I trust what the Bible says? Really? Can it really be true that I can be forgiven and cleansed? Can I really take God at his word here? And can I really place my trust in his son to save me? 
Well, friends, what God wants us to know here, and, and it's a theme that's repeated right through the whole of Scripture, is that God is faithful to his word, so we can take him at his word. It's never in doubt. It's a foregone conclusion. We can trust him implicitly to do as he says. And I pray that you would this morning if you haven't already. But this is also great news if you are a Christian already uh, this morning because uh, God here promises to to save many, doesn't he? You know, the book of Revelation pictures a, a great multitude that no one could number from, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the, the throne and the Lamb. And, and maybe you're, this morning, maybe you're trying to reach out to your friends and your family and your work colleagues. Maybe you're involved in the, the outreach ministries of the, the church here, and you're thinking, well, am I doing something wrong? You know, I'm, I'm seeking to share the gospel, but is that enough? Um, do, do, you know, do I need a different message now for a different age? Because there are loads of voices, aren't there? Some of them, sadly, even within the church, calling for a kind of wholesale redefinition of of the biblical gospel in the face of a kind of a post-Christian world. And and friends, right through the history of Christianity, there's been the same temptation to, to stop trusting in the promises of God's word when things are looking tough. Which actually makes passages like this such a great reminder to hold our nerve... And to keep preaching Christ and him crucified. Because the gospel is, as as Paul puts it, the power of God for salvation. God is faithful to his word so we can take him at his word and keep preaching his word. Keep preaching Christ. Because God will do what he has said in his word. And that ought to lead us to joy. Uh, Don't you think? Have a look at verses uh, 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have been, I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you see, Sarah's, Sarah's response to the, the faithfulness of God is, 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 is laughter, it's, it's joy, it's, it's delight. And, and what else could it be? Because God has made her fabulous promises and then he's delivered on those promises and and she is full of joy. And you know, friends, for us, you know, this side of the cross, how much more reason for joy should we have even than her? As we take God at his word and are assured that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves that he's promised to give us forgiveness and cleansing and restoration through the Lord Jesus. And he's delivered on those promises. And, and he will complete what he started. You know, you know that old joke about the, uh, the man who was asked if he was a Christian? And he said, no, it's just my indigestion that makes me look like this. Um, <laughs> there's, just, <sighs> there's just no excuse, really, is there, for, for that kind of joyless Christianity. Of course, life is, is tough sometimes, isn't it? Christians aren't immune from the, the sufferings of, of, of living in a broken world. But friends, even through those hardships, we can know real joy if we're taking God at his word. He's faithful to his word. And so if we're taking him at his word, maybe that could be written on our faces a little bit more. Um, uh, perhaps the challenge, the challenge here for me at least is that if we lack that gladness 
in our Christian lives sometimes that maybe we've just forgotten what great grace we've been given, what blessings are ours, what eternal joys await us, simply because God has been faithful to his word. So what does having faith in God's promises look like? It means trusting in the faithful God. But it also means, look, in verses 8 to 21, trusting in the choosing God. And you'll notice, look, between verses 7 and 8, there's a gap. And we're told where we're told that the baby grew and was weaned. Around about two to three years in those days. Whereupon Abraham reckons that's cause for a bit of a feast, a bit of a party. So I'm sure he gets the, you know, he gets the ice cream and jelly, he gets the bouncy castle and so on. But not everyone is as thrilled as Abraham and Sarah about this new baby. And if you look at verse 9, you'll see some more laughter. <laughs> Only this time it's not come from Sarah. It's come from the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. So that's Ishmael. And and it isn't this time the joyful laughter of promises fulfilled. It's kind of the the cynical, uh, the mocking laughter of jealousy and and of envy. Ishmael is scoffing at their joy in Isaac's arrival uh, and and of God's promise being fulfilled. In in fact, when Paul uh, comments on this uh, episode in in Galatians 4, he, he says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. But of course, if you remember who Ishmael is, you'll know why he's reacting like that. Um, Because if you remember, God had made these promises to Abraham back in chapter 12, people and land and blessing and and so on for the world through his descendants. But those promises hinged on him having descendants, which of course he didn't because Sarah couldn't conceive. And so although God had promised him a son, by the time you get to chapter 16, it, it looked like God had pretty much forgotten about his promise. So Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. Instead, Sarah had an Egyptian servant called Hagar, uh, and so she suggested to Abraham, well, why not have a son through her uh, instead? And, and of course, Ishmael was the result. And, and ever since that time, there seems to have been this kind of rivalry between Sarah and Hagar. And, and it kind of breaks out again here as, as Ishmael scoffs in envy at, at their joy. And, and Ishmael, of course, is the firstborn son, isn't he? He's the one who would normally be the main inheritor. But the arrival of Isaac... The, the child of the promise, well, that's put pay to that. And, and so Ishmael is, is scornful. And that, that evidently causes Sarah to feel that he's a threat to Isaac. And, and so she acts, I, I think, rather poorly um, and, and demands that Hagar and Ishmael are, are sent away. Uh, look in, in verse 10. Um, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So she may not have had very much compassion, really, for Hagar and and Ishmael. She just wants them gone. Um, But actually the same isn't true for Abraham, is it? Verse 11, he still loves Ishmael. He's he's still Abraham's son. But but notice what God says here, uh, looking in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So, so do you see what God promises there? It's, it's actually two things really, isn't it? 
The, the first one is that he reiterates to Abraham that Isaac is the one he's chosen. It's, it's through him, it's not through Ishmael, that, that God's promises would be realized. His is the, the family line through which God will bring blessing to the world. He reiterates that. And, and that's because, of course, Ishmael was Abraham's own sinful solution to God's promise, whereas Isaac was the son that, that God himself had, had provided, had chosen and provided. And, but friends, if you're anything like me, we kind of look at this story and we feel a bit of sympathy here for Hagar and Ishmael, don't we? And actually, I, th- I think to a certain degree we should. I, I think Sarah's manner of dealing with them is a, is a sinful one. But we shouldn't let that make us lose sight of something very important here about the way in which God works. Because in, in the New Testament, in, in Romans 9, in, in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Genesis to make the point that salvation, our rescue and our restoration to God, is a gift. It's something that God does for us because he is choosing a people for himself to be the the recipients of his love. And, And his choosing of a people is not dependent upon us deserving it. You know, with our good works or our religious behavior or... Uh, because we're in some way lovable. No, his choice of those to save is just about his undeserved mercy and grace towards sinful people. So so Paul says, for example, in in Romans 9 verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Uh, Do you see the point uh, that's being made there? He's quoting this episode in Genesis 21 to say that the true descendants of Abraham, God's people, are not merely those who share his bloodline, but those on whom God has had mercy, those he's chosen. And, and who are they? Paul goes on in, in Romans 9, 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see the point? God chooses people to receive his mercy. If you're a Christian here this morning, well, yes, it's because you've responded in faith to the gospel as it's been declared to you. But, but actually above that... More fundamentally, even than that, it's because God, in his sovereignty, has poured out his mercy on you when you didn't deserve it. And friends, that ought to humble us, didn't it? Because it's not our behavior that saved us. It's not our lovable nature that has saved us. It's not anything about us that has saved us. It's his work in us from from first to last. And it's simply because of his love and his grace and his mercy. And that's, that's great comfort, isn't it? Because if, if our salvation rested ultimately on our choice of him, who knows if we'd be able to see it through. But if it rests ultimately on God's choice of us, well, we can be sure that he will never leave us or forsake us. We can be sure that he'll complete what he started in us and bring us at last to heaven. 
But I think there's something else here look, as, as well, isn't there? Because we, we mustn't assume that God's choice here of Isaac and not Ishmael means that God doesn't care about everyone else. And, and actually what we see here in verse 13 is that God also promises to make a great nation from Ishmael. Did, did, did you see that uh, in verse 13? And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Do you see God, God kind of comforts Abraham uh, uh, with the knowledge that actually both of his sons have got futures ahead of them. Even though Abram's made this right mess through his failure to trust God and take matters into his own hands, God has kind of weaved grace towards Hagar and Ishmael into his plan. Such that even though Isaac is the one through whom God's unfolding plan for the world is is going to be realized, yet he's shown grace uh, towards Abraham and Hagar and and Ishmael. And, And he's shown too that he's not only sovereign over his people, but he's, he's sovereign over all people. And, and his concern is, is worldwide. And, and in the New Testament, you know, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says of, of God that he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, God's saving grace centers on those that he's called to himself through the gospel, those he's chosen. But, but there's also God's common grace there's that grace that God pours out on all people and it's a sign that he's he's gracious and kind to everyone beyond what we deserve and and of course when Jesus applies that truth in, in Matthew 5 he says that it means that followers of Jesus should also have that same concern for all people you see we are not friends as Christians we are not just to love the members of our family and fellow Christians but we are even to love our enemies and we see here that, that God's concern is, is for, uh, especially here for the outcast, for, for the outsider. Ishmael and Hagar are, are on the outside of God's promises, aren't they? It's through Isaac that the, the promise is going to be moved forward, yet God is concerned for them. And friends, I, I think that challenges us, doesn't it? Not to have hard hearts or, or to be parochial in our love and our concern towards other people, but to recognize that God himself ha- has concern for all people. And actually, especially for the outcast, for the unjustly treated. And he's constantly pushing us as his followers out to to serve and and to proclaim Christ beyond our our current influence. We we really reflect God's heart when as individuals, when as as a church, we are looking beyond ourselves. And we're having a concern to, to reach out to more and more people with the love of God in the gospel. Because there are no people, friends, who are beyond God's concern. There are no people that we don't have to bother with. Um, So so what does having uh, faith... Just wait for the bike to go. (laughs) What does having faith in God's promises look like? Um, Well, it means trusting in the faithful God that the God is faithful to his word so we can take him at his word. And it means trusting in the choosing God, the God who is building a people for himself through the gospel simply as an act of undeserved mercy. But then finally, look, uh, verse 22 through to the, the end. Having faith in God's promises means trusting in the everlasting God. You, you might have noticed in, in verse 22, that, that we're, we're, we're introduced to somebody we met the other week, aren't we, in chapter 20, namely Abimelech, 
Do you remember the, the local king who, who ended up taking Sarah as his wife because Abraham told him she was his sister? Um, and, and when they met the last time, if you remember, Abraham rather disgraced himself, didn't he? He, he wrongly thought that there was no fear of God uh, in this pagan land. Uh, and so he was afraid that if he owned up to being Sarah's husband, he, he would get kind of bumped off by, by someone else who wanted to marry her. So he deceived Abimelech. And, and Abimelech's household uh, suffered uh, as a result. But, but despite all that, Abimelech seems to have realized, uh, verse 22, that God is with Abraham in all that he does. And, and so because Abimelech knows that God is with Abraham, but he also knows what Abraham's past conduct has been like, he wants to make sure that Abraham doesn't pull any more deceitful stunts like he did before. Uh, verse 23 At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with this land where you have sojourned. You see, he's saying, I I dealt kindly with you after you brought all this trouble on me with your deception about Sarah. So now I want you to deal kindly with me by not deceiving me or my descendants over anything else. To which Abraham says, verse 24, yes, I will. But then he raises an issue of his own, doesn't he? You read that about a well of water, uh, which it seems that Abraham's men had had dug, but which Abimelech's men had had seized control of in, in verse 25. So so he wants to see that injustice resolved as as part of any agreement these two men make, which it is. You see, they form a covenant, a a treaty together, which everyone seems to be happy about, uh, which is certified through Abraham giving certain sheep and oxen to Abimelech as a sign of his agreement. Look, verse 27. Um, And also giving him seven ewe lambs, verse 28, as a guarantee of his right to the well that he had dug. So so it's it's a result, isn't it, that everyone seems to be happy about. Abimelech and his commander return home in peace, verse 32. And it's a great result for Abraham, isn't it? Who's moved from being a nomad in the land that God had promised him. Rather dangerous position to be in to being someone now with permanent water rights (laughs) it's a great result and one that means peace and prosperity for Abraham such that he spends verse 34 many days in the land and he plants a tree there which is a sign of fruitfulness and, and and prosperity but friends I want us to notice to whom Abraham attributes this newfound peace and prosperity. You can see it in verse 33. Abram planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. In in other words, he's making a memorial to God at Beersheba because he knows that it's God who is the source of the peace and prosperity that's come to him. And and Abram's sort of designation of God there as the everlasting God, I think is quite significant. Because he's noticing, isn't he? He's, He's acknowledging that his trust is not in Abimelech and the treaty that he's just made with him. Because, you know, he might be king now, but who knows what might happen in the future. No, Abraham's trust here is in the everlasting God. That the one will be around forever. 
The one who's faithful to his promises. The one whose plans will not be thwarted. And, and friends, do you, do you see how Abram's faith in God's promises has grown? Over the various adversities and, and trials of these last few chapters, God's been deepening Abraham's trust. He's been refining his faith in the fires, as it were, of adversity. He's been knocking off his rough edges. He's been growing his trust through the tough realities of his life. And friends, God does the same thing with us, doesn't he? We, we read at the beginning in, in 1 Peter one, didn't we? You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the trials we face are there for, friends. They're there to deepen our trust. And that's because faith doesn't grow in a greenhouse. <laughs> it grows in the, in the unpredictable climate of life. As, as we step out in faith to, to follow our Saviour uh, under the guidance and, and direction of God. And as we do that, he, he doesn't steer us around the tough realities of life. He pours grace and mercy into our lives through the tough realities of life. And friends, that is a good thing. That's a thing for us to submit to, not push away from, because he is deepening our trust in him. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the faithful God that the one who is faithful to his word, and so we can take you at your word. Thank you that you are the choosing God. You're the God who is building a people for yourself through the gospel simply as an act of undeserved mercy. And thank you that you are the everlasting God. You're the God who will be around forever and, and who is faithful to his promises. That the promise is to put right what our sin has messed up, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray that each of us here this morning would trust in you and your promises, either for the first time, if we've not done so already, or that you would deepen our trust, revive our trust in you as we see more of your character in your word and as you refine us through the tough realities of our lives. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.